0: The Hub is a community. Manuscript,
1: book, and print cultures, stamping, problems. You are
0: listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research
2: Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating 10 years
1: created by Carl Tsipras the, Start Change
3: the Hub is about impact.
1: 90%. The Hub is for everyone. Good evening everyone and a very warm welcome to the Trinity and the changing city public lecture series 2020-21. My name is Daniel Fass. I'm based in the Department of Sociology at Trinity College Dublin and I'm the director convener of the identities and transformation research theme. This is one of five interdisciplinary university wide research themes that are based in the Trinity long room hub. And we work around five clusters uh, to do with identities. One of them is globalization, migration and belonging. Uh, Another one is embodied identities where we look at sexuality and gender, emotions, parenthood. Another one is the self in the digital world, the impact of the ongoing revolutions in communication technologies and so forth. We also look at narratives and performances of identity. So for example, literature and drama. And last but not least, identity, politics and memory contests. We have a steering committee, we engage in national and international research projects, and we do outreach and public engagement activities. And the flagship event of that is the Trinity and the Changing City lecture series. This has been running now for the third year in a row. So it's a multidisciplinary lecture series um, connected to the identities and transformation theme. And at the core of the um, uh, lecture series, is the idea that Trinity College has been a key witness over many centuries to Dublin's development into the cosmopolitan city that it is today. So this series therefore we look at the lived experience of Dublin citizens through the prism of Trinity's arts, humanities and social sciences. By drawing on historical, cultural, linguistic, sociological and economic perspectives, we will consider how we can understand a changing Dublin and influence plans for the city's future. Dublin, as we all know, has been transformed by the economic crash, the austerity measures that followed, and of course, recently challenges relating to COVID-19, as well as wider issues such as displacement and migration, to name but a few. The city's built environment and economic, demographic and linguistics mix have all developed the pace, but these changes and their relationship to issues around religion, the environment, poverty, health, which is the spotlight tonight, health, Housing and government policy have not generally been well represented in the media or indeed in public discourses. There is a representative gap, therefore, between the city in which Trinity resides, not least in terms of language, race, class, and so forth, and the images and narratives of that city put forth in the broader culture. And this Trinity and the Changing City lecture series will seek to address and interrogate these gaps, bringing internationally recognized scholars in the arts, humanities, and social sciences from Trinity and further afield together with key stakeholders and practitioners from the city. And tonight I'm delighted that uh, the topic will be unhealthy Dublin, food sharing and sustainability within cities. Unlike Cork, Waterford and Galway, Dublin is not a healthy city. Why is this, you might wonder? And what makes a city healthy? What policies and actions are in place? and how can evidence-based research inform such policies and actions. A panel of distinguished experts will discuss these and related issues, and we have tonight with us Professor Anna Davis, uh, Professor Richard Late and Dennis Carroll. I will introduce each speaker before they speak for about 10-12 minutes. Uh, each one will speak, and then we will take questions and answers from the panel at the very end, from the audience at the very end. You see a Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. So could I please ask you once you have a question, please use that Q&A function, type your question, and I will then read out that question when we come to the Q&A session later on. Uh, We aim to finish the session by eight o'clock. Could I also ask you to please put your mobile phones in silent mode. So um, without further ado, um, we're on to our first uh, speaker, Anna Davis. Anna directs the Environmental Governance Research Group and is on the Steering Committee for the Trinity Centre for Future Cities. She chairs the Royal Irish Academy Future Earth Ireland Expert Group, is a ge- um, Geographical and Geosciences Committee, and the Planning and Environment Research Group of the Royal Geographical Society as well as being the secretary of the European Roundtable on sustainable consumption and production. She's a member of the development team for the Future Earth Knowledge Action Network for for systems of sustainable consumption and production. Um, And she was elected to membership of the Royal Irish Academy in 2017. Anna also advises the Irish government as a member of the National Climate Change Council and is a member of the expert group for the Citizens' Assembly on Climate Change. Her research looks at socio political and spatial aspects of environmental policymaking. And completed projects of hers have included work on environmental planning and sustainable development, values and valuation of the environment, the politics of climate change, biodiversity, waste management, sustainability enterprise, and sustainable consumption. Tonight we'll hear a glimpse of her very um, um, coveted ERC European Research Council grant that she won. Um, A few years back and without further ado, I'm delighted Anna that you're here tonight. I hand over to you. Very warm welcome.
3: Thank you, Daniel. I'm just going to start sharing my screen. Thank you for that, Daniel. Um, I hope everyone can see see my slides now. So yeah, thank you. I'm so delighted to participate in this panel. We've been waiting a long time to do it uh, since March of this year. It's great to actually be here. Um, I'm going to set up the discussion, really, I hope, by briefly outlining some of the international research I've been conducting, which explores the practice and sustainable potential of urban food sharing. In particular, I'm going to focus on how collaborative practices we examine provide in a multitude of ways to support urban well-being, contributing to more sustainable and healthy cities. So we're very familiar with the idea of food as fuel for the body the sustenance and nutrition it provides for life, but less discussed is how food and activities around it provide support for positive mental health, communities and the environment. So more than merely fuel, food and collaborative activities around it can provide space to connect the earth and with each other, supporting self-care through individual well-being and building bridges within urban communities. So I'm going to begin by highlighting some international examples of how food sharing cultivates care, connections and learning that resonate with established metrics of well-being. And then I'll outline how despite these benefits, many food sharing initiatives struggle to sustain their activities. But first, what is food sharing? Well, there's no agreed definition, but in the Sharesty project, we began with a dictionary definition for sharing and expanded it into the food arena. So basically, it can be summarized as doing things together around food. And academic research on food sharing has been dominated by evolutionary biologists and anthropologists studying small-scale subsistence and hunter-gatherer societies who've established that humans share food unlike any other organism. But while many animals share food, the patterning and complexity of human food sharing is truly unique. And that's due to our hyper-sociality. We're very social beings. In small-scale societies, food sharing has been shown to secure sustenance, to cement social relations as a way of showing off your social status and acquiring high value, but challenging to acquire food. What about contemporary urban environments like Dublin? Food sharing has received renewed attention in such settings for a number of reasons. Because of concerns around the increasing atomization of contemporary urban life, because new technologies, particularly digital and smart technologies, are reshaping the ways that people interact, communicate, and transact. And finally, because people are looking for more sustainable ways of living in urban areas. People often blame modern technologies, smartphones, apps, web platforms and the like for disconnecting us from each other, creating a world which solo dining becomes commonplace. Smartphones meaning we live in an always on culture with fast food of any description waiting to be delivered straight to our desk. Meanwhile, apps allow us to connect seamlessly with people halfway around the world at the expense sometimes of those next to us in the bus or on the restaurant. But the internet also provides many opportunities to reconnect over food, whether it's identifying opportunities to grow together via interactive maps of community gardens or discovering the location of social dining experiences. Literally thousands of grassroots and community-led initiatives use food as a catalyst to bring people and communities together. And these activities are local, small-scale, and run by volunteers. But their online presence meant that we were able to locate them in all four corners of the world. And we systematically mapped these across a hundred cities, developing an online interactive tool to explore why, what, and how food is shared. We prepared detailed sharing profiles of cities, including Dublin, giving important visibility to activities that easily fall below the radar. We found that sharing activities occur in all stages of the food chain, from sharing seeds to growing food, from preparing food and eating together, to the collective practices of redistributing food surplus. You can check these out on our website through the interactive Share City 100 database. And building on that database, it was through in depth ethnographic work with food sharing initiatives that the intersections between food sharing, health and wellbeing really emerged, cultivating care, connections and learning. Now the term cultivation literally means preparing the earth for growing, but the Latin roots of the word also refer to matters of care and labour. So figuratively, culti- cultivating can also mean improving, encouraging, making friends with, developing a new quality or skill. And While it's obvious that community growing activities involve preparing land for growing, We found that food-sharing initiatives of all kinds involve more figurative dimensions of cultivation. So the Skip Garden and Kitchen in London's King's Cross, run by the organisation Global Generation, involves a mobile growing, cooking and eating site, which gives ample opportunity to care. This does, however, require hours of physical labour as well. The Edible Garden City in Singapore, meanwhile, emphasises how their collaborative activities can be therapeutic and rewarding. While Himmelbeet, an intercultural community garden in Berlin, talks about how their activities allow people to pay attention to each other and non-human nature. These food sharing activities give opportunities for participants to care for themselves, for each other and the planet. And this is important because loneliness is increasingly seen as one of the biggest predictors of physical and mental health problems and is associated with an increased mortality risk. Food sharing initiatives provide ample opportunities for making more social connections from fleeting moments of encounter to deeper, enduring relationships, as illustrated by the Skip Garden and Himmelbeet quotes on this slide. But food sharing also offers possibilities for remaking connections with others beyond those who share directly. So the Skip Garden brought the site developers into closer contact with the surrounding communities, while Himmelbeet sought to connect with diverse social groups in the area through regular open events. Essentially, food sharing provides a meshwork of relations between human and non-human. And it's through these connections that the final form of cultivation I'll address this evening is supported, and that's learning. For many food sharing initiatives, cultivating practices of learning was a core part of their mission, in particular learning about growing, cooking and eating sustainably. So Organisation Earth in Athens, for example, was established to offer a physical hub for sustainable development training to expand collective prosperity and a better quality of life. Creating such opportunities for experiential learning, to learn by doing, were particularly common, as noted by the Skip Garden, which talks about the garden as an outdoor classroom. Kim Beat, as part of its mission to create an inclusive multicultural space, developed a co-design project to create an accessible gardening book that could be used by all within the garden. Growing with and alongside others provides a way to combat loneliness and opportunities to spend time in nature without spending money. It can also provide a range of health and well-being benefits, reducing stress, heart rate, and blood pressure. Indeed, recent research has uncovered that spending only two hours in nature each week can have the same health benefits as eating five portions of fruit and vegetables a day or undertaking 150 minutes of exercise. So, how do these practices relate to established systems of well-being? The ways to well-being approach first outlined by the New Economics Foundation in the UK back in 2008 and implemented in NHS Trusts, they were commissioned to develop interventions to achieve greater well-being. But what Share City makes clear is that there are already existing activities which meet these ways pretty well. So food sharing offers opportunities to be active, to learn from each other, and to look out for others, including animals, plants, and soils. They can provide a denser web of social ties, both weak and strong, helping people to connect with their local areas. But despite these clear contributions well-being, food sharing initiatives face many challenges in their day-to-day activities. Whether food sharing initiatives flourish or fade is not only down to the energies of those who establish and participate in them. Government policies and regulations play an important role in shaping food sharing activities. As we identified in a recent publication focused on establishing a sustainable food system in Europe, governments tend to see food only as a commodity. They regulate activities as if they were solely commercial businesses or entirely private matters. As a result, the social, environmental and health benefits that accrue from food sharing, which don't fit neatly into either of these two boxes, are often missed. Food sharing initiatives are forced into precarious existence on the scraps of land unwanted by those who seek to make a profit. These spaces are often accessible only on meanwhile leases, that is until something more profitable comes along. The lack of holistic food policy departments particularly at local government level doesn't help in many places. There's a question over whether these Food sharing activities should be counted as spaces of leisure or food production, are they green spaces or community centres. We found these common challenges were present internationally. So in a recent multi-stakeholder workshop we ran in Dublin called Sharing Futures, we combined our extensive research findings and policy challenges with the expertise of international researchers, policy shapers and food sharing practitioners. We did this for all sectors of food sharing, and this slide shows some of the key challenges we uncovered. Unsurprisingly, perhaps land use planning is an influential mechanism for this cohort of sharers. Not only is access to spaces precarious, but the benefits of food sharing are rarely identified. Of course, there are ways to address these challenges. In Oslo, for example, building codes were changed to mandate spaces for collaborative activities. While in the UK and the US, lawsuits and legal tools such as land trusts, have been used to protect land for community gardens and other collective spaces. Public pressure and charismatic champions can bring attention to the benefits of sharing and being innovative about the spaces which can be brought into sharing can be productive. A suite of needs to improve the visibility and impact of food sharing were identified during the workshop, including more visible stories of successful initiatives to inspire others. Spaces for grassroots food sharing to exchange experiences with others and more appropriate metrics to capture the many impacts of food sharing. We've begun to respond to some of these needs through the development of Share It, an online tool co-designed with food sharing initiatives. Through the three pillars of Share It, the tool shed, the talent garden and the greenhouse, we're providing the resources and online infrastructures to identify, share, compare and communicate the impacts of food sharing. However, food sharing initiatives still find it hard to engage. We know this from our beta testing. Even though the tool was designed with food sharing initiatives themselves in order to meet the needs that they specified. So we're currently exploring ways in which we can lessen this burden and expand engagement. So to conclude the current COVID-19 pandemic has created new challenges for food sharing. Here in Ireland in March, community gardens were shut just as they were springing back into life after the winter. Community kitchens could no longer provide the social dining experiences they once did, and surplus food redistribution networks have had to find new ways of working to ensure surplus food is not wasted. In some locations, community gardens have reopened. In New Hampshire in the US, guidelines for keeping community gardens open safely through social distancing have been developed. But COVID-19 also highlighted the often limited ways that community gardens are perceived by local authorities. Many were closed initially because they fell under the non-essential category of recreational leisure spaces. In Canada, closures led community garden leaders to push back against this reductive recreational label, flagging the importance of the gardens for food security and social provisioning. We must take the shock that COVID-19 has given to the status quo as an opportunity to reiterate once more the collective benefits of doing things together around food. Food sharing initiatives are, as Jane Ridderford from Global Generation stated, fundamental building blocks for sustainable cities. They are literally creating the conditions for change. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much, Anna. Um, Can I just remind people to um, use the Q&A function to keep the questions coming as we go through from one presentation to the other. So it would be good to get uh, a good number of questions together by the end of the third talk, rather than just starting to type out the questions when we reach the end of the third talk. So with that in mind, uh, let's move on uh, to introduce our second uh, speaker of the night, um, Richard Late. Professor Richard Late is Professor of Sociology um, and Chair of the Department and and Chair of Sociology um, here at Trinity College Dublin. Much of his work uh, comes from a core interest he has in the structure of social and economic stratification in modern societies and its impact on individual life chances, health, and well-being. His research looks at the fundamental processes which influence the distribution of health and well-being in societies and how these are shaped by political economy and the structure and functioning of healthcare systems. He has a keen interest in improving understanding of how family background influences child health and development and the impact this has on the child's educational outcomes, adult health and life expectancy. Recent work has included, for example, uh, the Great Recession in Ireland uh, and and um, whether the Great Recession in Ireland had an effect on child health and development, uh, the pathways and mechanisms through which these effects occurred and the implications for this for life course models of health and well-being. He's also very interested in the intersection of social, psychological, and biological science, and works with colleagues uh, across a range of disciplines. Precisely in the spirit of this Trinity and the Changing City lecture series, which is also, as is the Trinity Long Room Hub, uh, very multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary. So, without further ado, Richard, delighted that you are here with us tonight. Over to you.
0: Thank you very much, Daniel, and um, delighted to be here. So, let me just let me just share my screen, okay? So. Uh we can see my slides. Okay, so. There's the slides, let me just pop backwards. So um, thank you very much to Anna for a a fantastic presentation on a a really important issue. uh, And I thought a really fundamental issue there about about the way that we engage with food and the role that food has in our lives. And I I want to sort of add to that by talking about food environments, uh, both, globally in industrial societies but particularly in Ireland as well and the role that um, the availability of food can have in terms of both influencing our diet that we that we consume but also then the our health as a function of that because there's a a really well-established literature at this day uh, at this stage um, lots and lots of evidence a library of evidence about the relationship between the food that we eat and our risks of various diseases, okay? So I don't need to tell you any more about that. I'm I'm sure we've all seen the constant um, news that comes to us about the risks of cardiovascular disease and and cancer and how they can be related to consumption of of various foods. Um, But what many people don't uh, know about is the fact that um, there are pronounced social gradients in dietary quality. Uh, And this is one of the focuses of my research really. as Daniel uh, suggested, a lot of my research looks at the stratification of health outcomes in our societies and where these come from. Where, where do these inequalities in mortality, what people die of, and morbidity, what makes them sick? Where, where do these come from? Now, we do know that um, dietary quality varies across different social and economic groups. To the To the right on my screen here, you can see that um, I've got a little chart that just shows you the, this is actually mortality differentials. Well, it's actually uh, life expectancy for people who live uh, in different areas in Ireland, okay? So those who are in the least deprived areas in Ireland um, are on the, the left-hand side. Those are in the most deprived areas are in the right-hand side. And you can see that in terms of life expectancy for both men and women, life expectancy falls as we move from the most, uh, from the most least deprived to the most deprived areas okay so um what, what this shows us is that there are there are gradients in, in mortality and life expectancy and we believe and there is increasing research that that is in part explainable through differentials in dietary quality okay that these may be contributing to some of these patterns that we see now i'm not going to try to go through all the, the complexities of how inequalities in diet and nutrition come about and, and their effects, okay. think. Um, but what I want to sort of pr- uh, focus on really is that often the emphasis in health promotion is on individual factors. It's on the sort of the knowledge that people have, their perception of risk, and then there's sort of dietary selections that they make at an individual level. But actually, as a sociologist, I, I tend to focus much more on the structural drivers of choices, if you know what I mean. So. I'm I'm not focusing on those individual level characteristics, maybe their personalities or other factors about them. I'm I'm really interested in how the environments that people are in and their social groups influence the kind of choices that they might make or often the choices that they don't have to make. And in a sense, that's what this presentation tonight is about, Okay, because what I want to look at is um, the evidence that we've got about the role that the physical environment, and by that I mean the food environment can have, on the dietary quality that um, people consume, right? Because this is something that's often ignored. In fact, there's very little research on this in Ireland. There isn't a massive amount of research internationally because it's quite tricky to study in any kind of rigorous scientific way, but we have very little of it in Ireland. And I want to tell you some, about a little bit of the research that I've done to look at these structural, uh, environmental drivers of dietary quality, okay? Uh, so, this issue is important in ireland because of course um, the the food that we have available to us as anna said is often regarded as the fuel for our bodies it's a really fundamental part of our lives but often in the countries in which we live we don't pay the availability of food a great deal of attention and we don't we don't see it as something that is intrinsic to actually producing really good uh, public health long life expectancy and high quality life as well. And, and as, and as slides were really excellent, showing the kind of the the role that social context can have in terms of just improving quality of life as well as, as health outcomes. Um, But these issues have become particularly problematic and they've been, they've been given increasing focus in the US where the concept of food deserts has become something that's very important. I've just got a little slide up here or a picture, a map of the, of the US, that just shows you um, the distribution of what are regarded as food deserts in the US. So here, this is um, the proportion of, of people within an area, it's counties within the US, uh, where they have no access to a supermarket within a mile, and they don't have a car either. And you can see there are particular black spots about this, and many of these black spots are in quite urban areas. This isn't in a uh, particularly Um, standout feature of a lot of American society that many of the biggest cities actually come across as having very large food food desert areas that these are areas of the city where there just isn't uh, the availability of high quality or even moderate quality food where people really only have access to convenience stores and foodstuffs which are high in salts fats and sugars Um, they're very low in availability of uh, green vegetables fresh meats just fresh goods um, which are gonna be able to contribute to to better health outcomes. And this is an increasing concern and it's been uh, a part of a a development within the US, not only from public health um, physicians and and public health authorities, but also grassroots level as communities try to provide for their food needs, but they're doing it within an economy which is premised upon market processes. And that actually makes it very difficult often for people to access food. Now, I should say that outside the US, there is not uh, a large uh, concern about food deserts. We don't have anything within Europe and probably globally as serious as the US in terms of food deserts. But there certainly is uh, an an influence of the distribution of food sources in terms of availability. If we look at Ireland, the, the food environment is actually one which is quite problematic. Um, when we look around at the, at the f- uh, food retail in Ireland, it's dominated by three big uh, multiples, as they're called. Uh, so you've got Dunn's Supervalue and, and Tesco's. And then Aldi and Little um, make up a significant share, but they're about a quarter between them. And together, all of these multiples, as they're called, um, complete about 90% of uh food retail in ireland of the of food supplied what are called group and symbols so they're your spas, centres, maces. they make up about another 10 11 percent um and i just say this okay because uh, a, a large proportion of the food retail in ireland is via these multiples but they're not distributed evenly across the population they're not they're not equally available to everybody even in the large cities you would think that you would not have to go very far to get to a large multiple supermarket. But actually the research that we've done suggests that they are not evenly distributed and where they are distributed is biased uh, largely against those populations who have lower levels of income, um, low levels of education, and uh, say a lower occupational position. So for example, if you look at these maps here, what I've done is I've mapped large multiples or just multiples, okay, as opposed to convenience shops in Dublin according to unemployment rates for um, district electoral divisions. So these are sort of voting districts um, on the left and then by level of unskilled employees on the right. And you can kind of see the visibility of it here. right? So if we just look at at the unskilled manual workers, you can see that the areas which are red or yellow or orange, they tend to have less supermarket or multiples within them. Whereas the areas which are green, and particularly the darker greens, where you've got less in the way of unskilled manual workers, and noticed quite a lot in South Dublin there, you'll tend to get more supermarkets. Now, this is not an accident. Of course, these are supermarkets making good commercial decisions to be able to make as much money as they can, right? And they'll base themselves in areas where they think there is gonna be a market. But that means that at the household and at the individual level, those households with the lowest means which also tend to have the worst diets, also have the worst access in terms of food quality. Having said that, there's been an interesting development over the last 10 years. And that is, as the German multiples, Lidl and Aldi have moved into Ireland, they've actually tended to locate themselves in more deprived areas. So what I've done is I've just overlaid Lidl there. I haven't put Aldi in because it just gets a bit too noisy. But I've overlaid the Lidls on that map and you can see actually the little shops in Dublin do tend to be much closer to those areas which are of more deprived, they've got more manual working class um, families in them. So in many respects, these shops have contributed to better food access in Ireland over the last decade. They've certainly improved in terms of the research that we've done, they've improved the, the, the situation from um, the late, uh, say 2008, 9 when these data were first collected, to the present day, and we see an improvement in dietary access because of this. So they've been a, a real benefit in many respects to, to uh, the population in Ireland, the that are, that are socially disadvantaged. So look, here's a, here's a little chart. I'm, I, I can't help but give you charts, I'm afraid. It's uh, just something I have to do. But what this, all this does is it shows you that there's a relationship between the income quintile, so that's the income group um, of a household, Right, so the lowest incomes are on the left, the highest incomes on the right. There's a relationship between the income group that you're in, and the distance that you have toward a, a shop, a, a multiple as I'm calling it. That's the blue line, and you can see that there's a significant falling off in, uh, or as mean distance uh, goes up with, with uh, as income goes down, they're inversely related. So you can see for the lowest income groups, they have the highest distance to a, a supermarket. Um, and they've also got higher distances, to tell you the truth, to convenience shops as well. But look what happens to our measure of dietary quality. We're using a measure called DASH, Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension. This is, a, this is an internationally accepted um, dietary pattern, which contributes to better uh, cardiovascular health and less hypertension. When we used, when we applied this dietary uh, data or this dietary approach to data that we had from food frequency questionnaires, you can see there that there is a very significant relationship between dietary quality and the income group of those families. As, as the income goes up, the dietary quality increases. So you can see then that poorer households are doubly disadvantaged. They're Disadvantaged in the sense they have lower incomes and a a lower ability to afford a high quality diet and they lower educations and uh, the sort of wherewithal and resources they need to make those choices. But they're then doubly uh, disadvantaged because they live in areas which are much less well served by the supermarkets that could provide them with better, higher quality food. And that, of course, is going to have a significant impact on them. Now, I I have to say here, okay, that the effects of distance are relatively small they are wholly dominated by, uh, if we look at the incomes of the households, and if we look at the kind of educations and the social occupational groups of the the people within those households. But nonetheless, they're statistically significant, and they do have uh, uh, an important impact on on the quality of the diets that people have. Just before I finish, I just wanna make it clear that these, these findings are quite odd in an international perspective, okay? the the effects that we see for ireland are large compared to studies from the uk australia and canada and this is an issue that still needs to be resolved in some ways why are these effects so strong for ireland why is it that our distance affects the distribution of retail in ireland seems to be actually uh created in such a way that it it is a negative impact on people's diets in this country. And therefore, it's gonna be a contributor to a lot of those gradients that we see there in morbidity and mortality, which uh, are a really pronounced part of of our society. I'll stop there, because I think I've probably been speaking too long already. Thanks very much. Daniel, I think you're muted
1: thank you very much richard really exciting presentation forgot even to unmute myself here uh, so uh, without further ado last but not least uh, we move on to uh, dennis kachel and as i said in my introductory remarks that bridge between uh, academia and also stakeholders and practitioners um, uh, is really important to the series and, and and to the work that we do and we incorporate that uh, perspective uh, in every of our panels uh, that we have on, on the wide variety of topics that are outlined at the start. So Dennis Kahal is the Healthy Cities Coordinator in Cork City. She's worked as a researcher in the area of public health and has been employed in the area of health promotion for the past 16 years. Dennis has worked in the areas of schools' health promotion, physical activity and tobacco control. In more recent years, she has developed her understanding and commitment to community health promotion and has coordinated the health profile of Cork City in support of World Health Organization recognition of Cork as a healthy city in 2012. Through the Healthy City structure, Denise has developed skills to support the development of partnerships between and among the community, voluntary and statutory sectors in the area of health promotion. And tonight she's with us here uh, to talk about Cork, a city that connects to improve the health and well being of all its people and reduce health inequalities. We're delighted that you're here. The floor is yours.
2: Thank you, Daniel. Um, I'm delighted to be here and thank you for the invitation. And I suppose I want to preface my presentation with I'm not coming from Cork to tell Dublin people that Dublin's an unhealthy city and Cork is great I promise. (laughs) Um, I actually would say that Dublin's a very healthy city it just hasn't gotten the designation from the World Health Organization Um, there's many things that you're doing in Dublin that we can learn from in Cork. Um, I'm going to talk about Cork and what we have done to um, get this designation, and I'm just going to relate a little bit then around food and what we're doing in terms of the Food Policy Council in Cork, if that's okay. And my contact details are there for anyone who wants to get in touch. So we're a designated World Health Organization Healthy City since 2012, Um, so that's eight years. And in those eight years, we've been through three phases of the World Health Organization um structure for a healthy city designation the current um phase which is phase seven we're applying for at the moment and um there's a different structure it's under it's a 10-year plan that we have to um develop as a city and it's under six p's uh, the p's of prosperity participation people place peace And what I'm delighted to see for the first time ever is planet and climate uh, related actions, which is fantastic to connect it to health. So, what is a healthy city? And again, I I would argue that Dublin is also a healthy city, as is Galway and Waterford and uh, many parts of the country. So it's, um, it's coming from the perspective that a city is viewed as a complex organism that's living, breathing, growing and constantly changing. And I guess a healthy city is a city that can respond to these changes. Um, it's one that improves its environments and expands its resources so that people can support each other in achieving their highest potential. And I think no more so than what we're learning since March, um, it's all about adapting, coming together and responding to the context of what's going on around us. And I think COVID has really demonstrated that. Uh, We definitely see it in Cork in terms of how systems and how services and how organizations come together. It's a process, so it's not an outcome. It's not about your designated healthy city, box ticked, off you go. It's actually about signing up to becoming and working towards health. So it's kind of the reverse thing of you're designated before you even start and then you start the, the, you're committing basically to taking action. So it's a city that's conscious of health and striving to improve it. So we'd never say that everything in terms of health in Cork is perfect we'd be saying that we're actually striving to improve all the time. Health is high on the political and social agenda. And that's the part of it that really excites me. And I was really keen to hear what Richard was saying earlier about that move. And I'll talk about it further on in health promotion to the individual. Healthy Cities is about moving away from that. And that's, that's the stuff that really excites me because that's how you do impact in terms of health. It's a, a, an emphasis on intersectoral collaboration. And that really is the foundation stone of what a healthy city is. So it's all about collaboration and uh, it's WHO European level. I suppose in Ireland, we have a very strong collaborative approach because we've had to over the years. We have a different local government structure to other cities across Europe. So we rely a lot on that collaboration. And I guess that uh, legacy helps us through the process of being a healthy city. And then it's commitment to health and a process and structure to make it happen. So it's not just good enough that your mayor signs up to say, yeah, we're committed to health. You actually have to put in place a structure and a process for that. It's about the social determinants of health. And really, I could give a three hour lecture on that. It's, uh, this is my pet project and my pet area. It's, a, it's an area of huge interest to me. I have noted on many occasions the amount of reports that cover the social determinants of health in the first page and then fail to engage with the social determinants of health beyond the first page of policies and documents. And it's, it's a difficult area. It's, it's complex. And I suppose it, it just requires um, it, it requires a good understanding to, to look at it. Um, it takes time to adjust and to to work on the social determinants of health. But there is a move, and there is a bit of a lifestyle drift that goes on. I love this quote, and I've used this quote for many years, and I think it's never more relevant than it is right now, that we move on in time and we revisit old problems with new perspectives and new emphases, which are determined by the environment in its various forms. The three pictures on the top of this screen are Patrick Street in Cork City, over three different decades 1930 1950 and currently and i suppose what it shows us is that move away from um, from more i suppose pedestrianized movement around the city to the motor car and the, the dominance that the car has and now these big efforts back towards pedestrianization so it's like as if a healthy city is a city that's responding to these social changes all along and with COVID-19 again the pedestrianization and the cycling around cities is becoming far more prevalent and we'd be hoping for social change around that ultimately but the reality I suppose of the world that I trained in health promotion and in general people's understanding of health and well-being is very individualized it's very much about this you have to stop eating too many fat foods to be to not suffer from obesity to be healthy you as an individual are responsible what we're moving away from in healthy cities is that only individualized um, approach to health that kind of if you'd follow the food permit everything will be fine approach of course that's important and of course that's in the mix but it's not the only emphasis. And I really like this quote, which came from the Journal of Public Health in 2010, that the personalization agenda, which aims to meet individuals' unique needs is effectively a consumerist agenda that risks undermining the collective approaches to meeting needs. And again, I suppose we can always relate it back to the context that we're in at the moment. If we're just focusing on our own behaviour, you forget the collective. If you're just thinking about yourself in the COVID-19 scenario, we lose the collective approach and the collective response that's actually required for public health at the moment. So public health must resist this lifestyle drift, silo-based working, and driving policy and delivery for quick fixes and low hanging fruit. And that's something I hear a lot, the low hanging fruit kind of um, adaptations or interventions around food and around health in general. So as Anna and Richard have very eloquently already presented, the food system is very, very complex. It's not just about the food pyramid. It's a huge complex structure. And for that, for us to have an impact in terms of behavior and health, the whole system has to be looked at. So it's at a policy and at a higher level that it's required. But why do we do these behavioral interventions? And I suppose we really have to look at this um, because it's more politically palatable. Let's be honest, it doesn't upset the status quo. It's a nice way of saying, we tried, we did something. It's visible, there's nice pictures to be taken. It can go on social media we developed a walking group we taught people how to cook we you know we we we've done our intervention it's more logical and immediately relatable to the problem at hand it's what people on the ground say if you go into a community and you say we want to look at the difficulty of obesity in this community the first thing they'll say is let's run a workshop on healthy eating let's do this with the children let's go into the schools and teach them what they need to know that will fix it for the future so people tend to to run for those kind of quick responses um, it has some level of effectiveness with the higher socioeconomic groups and the higher socioeconomic groups are the groups that are very vocal and very present and very engaged so as a result that can be the focus and it's easier to devise and quantify than upstream um, approaches to help So what I'd be saying here is that a healthy city is a city that focuses upstream. And I studied health promotion in Galway a long time ago. And I was always hearing about upstream, downstream health promotion. And I I suppose I'd never worked in a health service. I was straight out of my degree in sports science and I was quite naive. And I was always, what's upstream, downstream? I could never get my head around it. And I think the best way to describe it in terms of a healthy city is to say that A medical student could be walking down the road and see somebody drowning in the river and will pull the person out of the river and will resuscitate them and will treat them. And then the medical student notices there's another person in the river drowning, jumps in and saves them, jumps in again for the third, fourth and fifth and then eventually is exhausted because the medical student can't keep resuscitating all these people. So instead the medical student steps back and says, how come all these people are coming into the river and drowning? And they look upstream to see what's happening and they might notice that people are falling in from a bridge upstream. The upstream response is where you bring people together. If there's a problem with a bridge, you get your local authority, you get your community development project to let people know in the area that there's a problem with the bridge. You get the guards to stop people crossing over the bridge. You get, um, you get your engineer out to fix the bridge. So it's a multidisciplinary approach to stop people going downstream and drowning. So it's that preventative upstream approach that Healthy Cities engages in. But then I've always been caught with this thing of, as a practitioner, as a health promotion officer, as somebody who's quite practical, how do you marry strategy and action? How do you make yourself visible? And how do you make... Healthy cities, I suppose, um, visible and responsive if you're just focusing on strategy or if you're just focusing on action. So the real key to being a vibrant, healthy city is to marry the two. And while you're weighing in on really impacting on policy, you have to do so through action and through demonstrating good practice. Some of the projects that we're engaged in Um, are here. I'm not going to go into them all. Again, I could give another three-hour lecture on all the pet projects that we have. I'm going to give you an example of two just very briefly. In terms of policy um, advocacy and uh, trying to make change in terms of the social determinants of health, we've taken a very unique approach to our city profile in Cork we've done it at an interagency level. So rather than Cork City Council Social Inclusion Unit producing the social inclusion profile every year from the census, all of the agencies in Cork City that have an interest in health have come together and have compiled and decided what it is that they want out of the city profile. And we've put the lens of the social determinants of health. So rather than just referring to the social determinants of health in chapter one, and then going down the route of just talking about all the disease and chronic illnesses that are out there, we've continued to take that lens throughout. (coughs) So the emphasis is on all of the social determinants of health through the census, and that can be viewed on our website. These are maps of Cork City, and you will see in these maps, all of the areas, the darkened areas are the areas of high disadvantage. These maps reflect people's perceived health from the census in 2014, the number of people who've only gotten an education to primary level, the number of unemployed and those unable to work. And you'll see that these patterns are identical in 2018. These are the patterns that we're trying to impact in terms of healthy cities. We have a Cork Food Policy Council um, that we have set up since 2013. It was based originally in a community project, Knocknohini Community Food Initiative, and we grew it out to a citywide perspective. We formed a steering group of a number of agencies across the food sector, and we designed our logo, and we launched at a Feed the City event in 2014. (coughs) Every year, we have a food harvest festival where we celebrate community food projects. Where we bring people together and we celebrate um, what's going on in terms of food sustainability we make them visible and we celebrate it these are all of the volunteer hours that go into that event we also have sustainable and healthy food awards again showcasing businesses showcasing educational projects and showcasing community projects that work on sustainable and healthy food initiatives <coughs> We have the Green Spaces for Health in the South Parish, which is a project around greening an urban space, bringing into place a, a bee project, looking at ter- transforming a green grassy patch into a, a food forest, and transforming um, a public park that had suffered from a lot of antisocial behaviour into a nicely maintained park by local residents. We've also developed the food map, which Richard might have an interest in. And again, it's on our website, I won't labour this too much, but there's a lot of interesting facts around the location of food businesses and food um, outlets across the different parts of the city. You can interact with that map online at the corkfoodpolicycouncil.com website. I'm going to finish up because I know the time is tight. This is the best image I can use to describe what a healthy city is, and it's to follow on and Richard's point around the individual and behavior or the environment around which people can thrive. Yes, we can all be resilient citizens, and yes, we can all focus on our own individualized um, behaviors, but a healthy city is one that nourishes um, its citizens to flourish to its fullest potential. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, Denise. Um, Just a reminder again to our listeners uh, to use the Q&A function to ask as many questions as you like. Now is your shot. And we have a few questions in there already. So the first one is um, from Rachel Smith. How do you think we can link the health food crisis with the climate crisis to create all encompassing and sustainable solutions?
3: I can come back to that, Daniel, if you like. Okay, oh, yeah, yeah. Kick, go
1: ahead, Anna. <laughs> kick
3: the ball going. Well, I mean, the climate crisis and the food crisis are intensely linked. I mean, it's all important to state here at the outset that greenhouse gas emissions from the food industry account for twenty-five to thirty percent total emissions. Mm-hmm. So, doing something different around food is is imperative. Um, We know that collaborative acts around food can increase options for local food production, enhance food security, which the IPCC has highlighted is under pressure from climate change. That's not to say that food sharing alone can feed a city, but it certainly can make a contribution. And of course, the second element is around food waste. We know around a third of all food is wasted. And both the United Nations and the IPCC have found that this alone causes 10% of greenhouse gas emissions. So food sharing can help reduce emissions by providing more local and fresh food production, preparation, consumption, providing networks for surplus food to be redistributed. redistributed. Um, And I think importantly, because we've talked a lot about distribution and I love it as a geographer, I loved all the maps. Denise, I have to get get them off you. Um, And Richard also, I'm sure there's stuff that we could do there. But I think collaborative actions around food can create more deliberative and and relevant fora for engaged and inclusive decision-making. Um, which improves the quality of decision making, incorporating a broader range of views and expertise, helping to build trust in processes and buy-in to the outcomes. Uh, And such engaged communities is imperative to securing strong social mandate for continuous change beyond the kind of emergency that we're in um, with COVID uh, and to deal with the the emergency that that is climate change. So I think they're inextricably
2: linked. Can I come in there, Daniel? Just from a practitioner's perspective as well, um, and to reiterate that, they're intrinsically linked. And I think city councils and local government is, has never been more high, has never had more of a heightened awareness of that. Um, and especially in the current context, we all rushed to the supermarkets when COVID kicked in and there was a realisation that food supply chains are important to us um, for our survival. So there's been, I've certainly seen a shift in thinking in terms of city development planning and, and this idea of a sustainable food system for each of our, our for each, for our country basically, but for at local level as well. And a far greater openness for the provision of green spaces for growing for communities. So I think it's about the key players, the academics and the practitioners honing in when the opportunity is right and, and getting it in there in these city development plans, at national development plans, not just the same people saying it at the same time. it's the people like the health people raising it as well as the environmentalists raising it as well as the community practitioners, the engineers, the planners, everybody raising it, uh, just to say that sometimes.
1: Okay, and the next question is with reference to the lack of, of supermarket choice, would a lack of cooking skills also be a contributing factor to a poor diet? I think that goes to Richard, probably the answer is yes.
0: Yeah, um, of course, knowledge and skills are, are important for, um, for having a, a high quality diet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, when we look at the effect of well, the factors which predict your dietary quality, you'd think that the income would be really the dominant factor, wouldn't you? You'd think that it would be about the, the, whether you've got enough money to be able to buy a high-quality diet. But in fact, when you, when you do the analysis, what you tend to find is that um, education is a much stronger predictor. And um, it, it seems that actually having, having the skills to be able to put together something as complicated uh, as a diet in terms of you've got to buy all the components and you've got to buy them... You know, in sort of uh, in, in a way that allows them to be combined into sets of dishes that you have um, both available to you that you, you're you going to eat, your children are going to eat. And, uh, you know, as a parent, I can, I can really feel for a lot of parents who try to make food that their kids eat, which they think is is going to be nice and healthy. And then the kids turn their nose up at it and you end up putting it in the bin, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so you've, you've got to make a lot of, of quite skilled judgments about um, the purchasing of the food, the putting together of the food. Um, which we don't necessarily have. And I, and I think if you were to look at some other countries, they have a, a much stronger set of sort of folk skills in terms of the the diet, the basic diets uh, using their local produce that allows them to both be more sustainable because they're using a lot more local produce, but they're also better at doing those things. I mean, I, um, if you've ever been on holiday to Italy, it's quite remarkable when you're there that you, you notice that people don't, generally make a vast array of different dishes. You'll tend to see the same kind of Italian staples, but they'll be cooked uh, in a really effective way and they'll use lots of local produce. And, um, well, let's face it, they're delicious. They're, most people like Italian food, but the, you know, the main thing there is that they're, they're proficient at it, they, that they've, they've got a core set of skills and most people throughout Italian society have that. In Ireland, as in Britain, and in a number of, of the, uh, if you look to the sort of Anglo-Saxon countries, the Australia, New Zealand, what you often find is that there's a, there's a, a very steep social gradient in, in sort of knowledge and skills. And, and that um, you, you, it's something about those countries that develops, if you like, um, these kind of disparities between, between people that, that undermines the ability of some groups to be able to to have high quality, you know, nutritious diets.
1: Okay, and last but not least, uh, we have another question here, slightly um, um, off track, but still um, related enough that we take it. Is race or ethnic background also a predictor of health levels? And how can disadvantaged races or ethnic groups be best brought at par with other groups?
0: Is that another one for me? Um, <laughs> oh, Denise, did you want to answer that? Well, I, I mean, in the
2: broadest sense, I, I suppose I just want to talk about a piece of work that we did in Cork with a group of traveller women around their food choices. And it stemmed again now coming just to reiterate, I'm not a, a researcher, but from a practice perspective, I worked with traveller women for many years Um through the All-Ireland Traveller Health Study, et cetera. And they had said to me, Denise, if another health promotion officer comes near me with plastic food models and tells me what I need to eat, I'm going to scream. We know what we're supposed to eat, but why is it that we're still, we still have high levels of obesity in our population? So UCC, Mary Cronin, led a piece of research around it, um, and it was fascinating. It's it's quite a unique piece of research, actually, internationally. Um, And what it determined is that women, traveler women's food choices are very much related to culture and this whole process of feeding for the family and never being seen short uh, to offer your family food um, and anyone who might come and visit extra food. So you cook extra and you make sure it's there would have been one of the factors. Um, Another factor was the experience of discrimination and the impact that that has on, I suppose, comfort eating and uh, relying on food um, um, as well and food poverty and experience of, of poverty and this um, whole thing of just making sure that you have enough to eat and that everybody has enough to eat and that a good way of nourishing and providing for for your family was through food so there's many factors i think a lot of people a lot of the practitioners on the ground when it comes to the these groups rush to uh, let's do an input on what people should be eating and let's teach them what to eat and I suppose that was my point earlier you really have to look underneath uh, and you have to engage with communities to hear what it is that they need um, so you're right uh, ethnic and cultural uh, factors do have an impact on health and what I'd be saying is you address the social determinants of health you provide education you provide housing you reduce poverty and you reduce inequality if you want to really address those things, which is very difficult.
1: Another, Anna, do you want to go for this one as well?
3: And it kind of connects that question and and the previous question. Um, Certainly sort of in the field of work that we did, it's not so much a lack of cooking skills for lots of marginalized communities, it's actually access to cooking facilities. So for example, there are initiatives like Cooking for Freedom, which is calling for access to cooking facilities under direct provision. Homeless families living in hotels and hostels just don't have the facilities to cook fresh food. Um, And going back to the race elements, I mean, I think there's there's an amazing man called Ron Finley in South Central LA who sort of talked about himself as a renegade gardener, and he basically started growing vegetables on the curbside grass in south central LA because there was no other spaces for them to grow food or have access to food. So it goes back to the food deserts um, that, that were mentioned earlier. Um, and there was pushback from the regulatory controls because there were, you weren't supposed to obstruct the, the curbside, but that just generated more and became a movement. Um, and, and essentially, the government, uh, the local government, Um, rolled back on their restrictions uh, uh, and permitted this kind of growing for food because of its you know essential component to to health of of those communities and deprived communities so I'm not saying that necessarily that that works in Ireland but I'd be fascinated Richard to connect some of the research that um, students have been doing around the location of say community gardens and those deprivation indices as well. and To see if the, you know, this is at least a double burden. It's probably a triple burden in terms of being able to access the ability to grow your own food, to have access to fresh food uh, and things like that. So it's a very important area.
1: Thanks very much. Uh, There is another question that has just come in and I want to take it because uh, it says, do you think more could be done to promote our bee population with more open wild spaces, even in urban areas. And I want to partly answer it uh, already, because if you look here, there is this new wildflower meadow in front of Trinity College Dublin all the way around where I'm pointing here as a very, very good example. But maybe somebody else wants to come in.
2: Just to come in, in terms of Cork City, there's definitely a shift in thinking about the pruned green spaces around the city centre. Um, The more rewilding, like in a lot of our parks now, instead of mowing grass and they're letting it grow uh, a lot more, a lot more could be done uh, around that. And definitely with the Green Spaces for Health project, we've had a very successful urban bee project on the roof of St. John's College um, the new beehive within, within less than 12 months produced 36 jars of honey that, uh, that they weren't expecting to happen at all in the first year so they're definitely feeding from somewhere in the city um, but of course the, the city uh, councils could do a lot more around how they're maintaining their green spaces are not maintaining maybe letting them grow wild a bit more and making uh, food available for bees so yeah totally agree
1: Okay. Thank you very much. Um, So there's two final things from me here. One is to really thank uh, from the bottom of my heart, our three speakers, Anna Davis, Richard Laid and Dennis Cahill for really, really uh, excellent and insightful talks. And and thanks to the audience, of course, for the questions uh, that followed. And last but not least, just to flag up that on Thursday, the 19th of November, We have the next installment in this Trinity in the Changing City public lecture series. It's on education, class and inequality in Dublin. And it's a follow up to our social class panel that we had in last year's series, but this time with a very focused question, which is how do we fix inequality in education in our city? Until then, it's goodbye from us all and thank you very much um, for listening and for actively contributing. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures stamping provenance Languages towards the history to of the Taimon Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities game, created start, by Coral okay, changes. The Hub is
3: about impact.
2: The Hub is for everyone.
3: A
1: feminist okay. Here's to the next ten years.